following podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Welcome back to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Uh, this is Matt Adams, and I am, of course, joined with my colleagues, Sean Morris, Stephen Spinnenweber, Nick Bullock, and the Right Reverend Derek Bright of Aliceville, Alabama. We are, did I say shorter? <laughs> no, you didn't. You said longer. For all of our listeners out there, we there's um we the, there's an in in studio chat group, and uh, some of the other miscreants on today's show are are, are harassing our poor uh, host and telling him that he's misspeaking here when in fact he's not. <laughs> telling you, Spin, you're going to get muted for the entire episode in punishment, <laughs> especially since you're crying right now with with joy and laughter. I'm enjoying this episode already. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, if I would not be distracted and lied to uh, by my co-host, we'll jump into question number six, asking, "What do the scriptures make known of God?" The we're scriptures make known seven. No, we're not. <laughs> Don't interrupt me. Is this even the larger catechism show? I thought this was like you know the. Uh, uh, paleo-protestant uh, keto diet recipe i i don't know anything about a keto diet i'm sorry we don't do those in dylan isn't the keto what steven seagal did and that has <laughs> part the keto i thought that was just we a are, measurement of weight in the metric system or something we are off the rails today guys off the rails should I just start over reading the question again? We're on question six, despite what Mr. Aliceville, Alabama says. And it is, what do the scriptures make known of God? The scriptures make known what God is, the persons in the Godhead, his decrees, and the execution of his decrees. And so really, in this answer, we have four parts to define up what the Bible reveals about God. It tells us what God is, the being of God, the persons of the Godhead, that our God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. His decrees, or the plans that God has made in eternity before His creation even existed. And then, four, how He executes His decrees, how He carries out His plans by creation and providence. And so last episode, we talked about how question 6 through 90 is going to deal with the subject on how, you know, what we ought to believe concerning God. And so we can divide this information about God in really two parts. We, we've mentioned repeatedly how the catechism is so beautifully uh, composed by the divines. So we're going to walk through information about God himself and then information about God's works, what God is, the persons in the Godhead, information about God himself, and then his decrees and how he executes those decrees, information about God's works. And so 
because uh, Mr. Bullock did not uh, ridicule me at the very beginning of this episode, I'm going to call on him to go ahead and start us off here. Uh, Nick, give us some thoughts as we introduce this question. What do the scriptures make known of God? Well, I, I think it begins with a simple supposition that God is to be known. I mean, it's right there in the question. Mm. Uh, and, and doesn't this just confront the spirit of the age where people uh, tend to want to be indifferent about God? They want to be practical uh, or even very direct deist. Uh, but yeah, getting to the question itself, what do the scriptures uh, make known uh, of God? Uh, the answer that they give, the scriptures make known what God is, uh, this uh, wonderful truth. Now, it doesn't spell it out like the shorter catechism, at least in this question, that God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, power, wisdom, justice, holiness, goodness, and truth. Boy, um, that was good by memory, Nick. I appreciate that. I don't think it was perfect, however, but uh, nonetheless... Um, you know, it, you know, it's pointing us specifically to the things that we should uh, consider about who God is. You know, one of the things that I so appreciate about the way that the scriptures begin in Genesis 1-1 is that we are immediately uh, introduced to uh, God. It's, a, it's an absolute truth that God exists, and in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. It, it starts off by telling us something very important about our God, that He is always existent. He is for eternity past existed. Um, and, and like a southern gentleman, He begins to hold out His hand, introduce us to Himself. Uh, and from Genesis 1-1 to the very end of our Bibles, he will reveal himself and his works uh, all the more. He will tell us about himself. He will then tell us about his works of, of salvation and redemption, judgment, grace, mm -hmm. mercy. Uh, what, what he is all about uh, is what the scriptures uh, will uh, declare from us from the first five words of our Bibles. Yeah, I think you make a great point because... The Bible, if we could be very clear, the Bible is, I think its first concern is to reveal God to us. It's to reveal God to us. And uh, until we know who God is, we won't really know or adequately understand what he has done for us. So as I look at the question, you know, who God is, uh, what God has done, and then how he has done it, how he executes his decrees. Uh, I think God is put there at the first because only once you know God truly can you truly know what he's done. So in the uh, 20th century, with the encroachments of liberalism, there were all of these different views about the person of Christ, uh, that he's just a good man, he's a good teacher, he showed us the way of self-sacrificial love. And because they had an inadequate view of Christ's identity, uh, they cannot have an adequate view of his work because if Jesus is just a man and he's an exemplar, he's no savior. And so likewise, if God isn't holy, for example, because that's something that the Bible makes very clear about him. If God isn't holy, if he's not just, then we haven't really offended God. 
God's just a bigger version of us and we just need to accept his love and everything's fine with us. Or if God, you know, God loves you. We just kind of put that blank check out there, which a lot of people do in evangelism. Um, I think it betrays a deficient view of the holiness of God, the justice of God. And so if we're going to get the Christian life right, we first need to get God's identity and his triunity and his holiness right. You know, one of the things that Voss talks about in his commentary, which is so rich, is that not only is it natural for mankind to believe in the existence of God, but since it declares that God exists in Genesis 1-1 and tells us how he exists and tells us the characteristics of his existence uh, in person, um, now we realize that God's existence, as Voss says, is the key that unlocks the countless mysteries of nature and the human life. Uh, and then he, he flips that on his head and says, think about the contrary. If God did not exist, we would be an unfathomable darkness and mystery. Um, and, and so we, we have to, to really understand that, that to know God, and we've talked about this in our, our podcast already in previous episodes, to know God is really to bring about a fulfilled life uh, and to not know him. Uh, is a is a life of mystery and darkness. I think about First Peter two nine. You have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into His marvelous light. To know God is to walk in marvelous light, uh, and to really know Him is uh, how we are created to live. Um, even could could I throw something out to the group real quick? Um, I think a lot of people, when they think about the Trinity, and we're going to get to the Trinity and treat it more fully later. I know Derek's doing great work on William Perkins and his doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, I'm looking forward to the forthcoming leather-bound tome uh, written by Dr. Derek Bright one day. But the persons in the Godhead, somebody who's not a believer, somebody who's new to the Christian faith, they may wonder, why is it so important? that we need to know that God uh, is triune, that this Godhead thing, the one essence, three persons, why do the divines emphasize this? And why do we make so much hay about this? What would you guys say to somebody in your congregation who kind of picked this one out? They're like, look, the divines could have just said, the scriptures make known what God is. Why include that next clause, the persons in the Godhead? What do y'all think? Because that's who God is. <laughs> Boom. You know, I mean, I think I know that's a simplistic answer, right? But um, it's necessary to point out the persons and the fact that God is triune because that is God. That is who he is. And um, one of the, I think, things that we need to remember as Christians is we don't worship a generic God. We don't worship the God of that everybody else worships, right? We don't worship just this one mono personal God and who governs all things. No, God has revealed himself um, to us and, and he is father, son, and Holy spirit, one God, three persons. And if we don't get that right, then we don't worship God, right? We worship something else. And so, um, 
you know, there's obviously historical uh, debates that have gone on between people like the Socinians and the Orthodox, um, the Socinians denying the Trinity and uh, taking a very strict biblicist at times uh, hermeneutic where um, they they want to throw out all language about the doctrine of God, um, all metaphysical language. And the divines here are saying, no, it's not simply just metaphysical language that has been handed down throughout the centuries, though that's certainly, uh, you know, that that is a, a category and that's that's part of it. Um, but no, God has actually revealed himself in Scripture uh, to be one God and three persons, and we need to worship him. Otherwise, we run the risk of not only not only uh, idolatry, okay, we would commit idolatry and not if we worship God um, in any other way other than the triune God or any other uh, God other than the triune God, but also we create a God in our own image because instead of worshiping him as he's revealed himself to us, we worship what we think he is what he what we think he's like and so we need to make sure that we get it right that we are trinitarians because as the athanasian creed says um the athanasian creed is clear if you do not worship god in trinity and in unity you cannot be saved and that's why it's so important that was well said derek and before spin even threw out the the question which i'm not going to seek to improve upon but I was my mind was going. Don't you love how it's right there, uh, so early in the catechism and so early here in this question of we're going to get right to the Trinity, that God is in three persons because this is base level reform theology. This is base level Christianity that we worship God in three persons. God is irreducibly Trinitarian. So to think of the one is to think of the three, and the catechism is not shying away from. Well, we'll get to that later. No, we're going to put this in on the front end that we worship a triune God. And, and that is so important. Let me give a couple of brief anecdotes just from my, my childhood to, to, to illustrate that. I grew up in a hodgepodge of variety of, of different denominations uh, as, as a child and in, in my teen years. And I remember a couple times, and these were not Presbyterian churches that I'm speaking of, but I remember one worship service getting ready to go into it and asking my mom and my dad, I said, does this church make a big deal about the Holy Spirit? And I and I remember my my frame of mind when I asked that question. It's because I didn't I didn't properly understand the Holy Spirit as the third member of the Godhead. I, I thought it was just this weird notion. This, or and maybe I was used to that language of Holy Ghost, and I was confused by what Holy Ghost meant. And so I thought it was this weird spiritual force thing that weird mystical Christians threw in there, and it didn't have much to do with anything. And I was weirded out by it. I didn't have a proper understanding of God rightly as Triune God. And then I remember later at a different church, there was a baptism. It was a it was a Baptistic kind of church. And so it was a, it was a I remember it was a full immersion baptism. And I, and I recall distinctly the presiding elder who was who was lowering the, the candidate into the water and he was he was pronouncing the baptismal formulary. He said, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son. And then he hesitated before he said Holy Spirit. And I don't think it was because he was nervous, and I don't think it was because he just lost his place or something. I think that there was a split second hesitation in his mind as to whether or not he should even invoke the name of the Holy Spirit because he wasn't quite clear uh, on 
on the third person of the Godhead being fully and equally divine along with the Father and the Son. And I can just remember growing up as a kid thinking of, you know, praying and, you know, praying to God the Father and praying in Jesus' name. And the Holy Spirit was, it wasn't even an afterthought. It was a no thought. I just thought of God and Jesus, God and Jesus, God and Jesus. And the Holy Spirit was just not even a category that I thought in uh, until I until I wandered into Presbyterianism, until I started to uh, to get better acquainted with Reformed theology and have a more robust understanding uh, of the role and the person of the whole of God, the Holy Spirit. And then I had plenty of um, charismatic and Pentecostal experiences as well, where we got a little excessive on the role of the Holy Spirit. But that's a story for another day. But the divines are wise, of course, they're right to just get it out there right in front. God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is essential uh, to Christianity, to say nothing of Reformed theology. You know, the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 1 tells us that we cannot enjoy God fully until that we until we understand that we enjoy him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, you know, in the first what four verses, uh, as as John's writing probably to the church at Ephesus, he begins to unpack the gospel that they heard directly from Christ, what they've seen with their eyes, touched with their hands, heard with their ears. Life was made manifest in the person of Christ. He says, we're, we're preaching this gospel to you so that you might believe upon the Son of God, is essentially what he's saying, and then by the Holy Spirit be called up into this fellowship, not only with the apostles and the other believers, but indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And then he says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The early church fathers, the Puritans, they all spoke of this fellowship, this perfect and unhindered fellowship that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost have within themselves, this relationship, this harmony of, of love and communion. And by the Holy Spirit, as He... Uh, replaces our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. We are now called up into that fellowship so that we might experience that love, experience that communion with the other believers, the other saints that have gone before us and will come after us, but also with our triune God. And, and he says, it's only then that our joy might be complete. Uh, and so I think that's on the heart of the the Westminster Divines as well, as they put this out right and early that our God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. This is the only way. Uh, this is the only faith. This is a, the only message of truth that we can believe and find applicable for our daily living, that we have fellowship, communion in the, in the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So what about his decrees? So we've got a clear attestation to God's triunity. Uh, three persons in one essence. And then it talks about his decrees. We actually are nerds. I was going to joke and say, when's the last time that you use decrees in a sentence like casually? But that was probably today for most of us. So that's fine. Uh, but this morning at breakfast when I was speaking with my dear wife, that's when. Woman, I decree that you get me coffee. <laughs> oh, no. She, she would then decree that he um, see himself out the door. Uh, Sarah Morris, what a champ that woman. But talk about the decrees, guys. Uh, let's talk about the decrees. Then we get into the execution of the decrees. So somebody comes into your church. They're saying, what say you about these decrees, sir? How would you explain this to them? The Bible tells us about God's decrees. Well, we, I guess we don't want to cheat 
a whole lot here. And folks that are familiar with the Westminster Standards, whether it's the shorter or the larger catechism, will know that the catechism more helpfully explains and, and explicates those uh, further on down. And since we're in the larger catechism, it's question 12, where we get more a more robust definition of the decrees of God. It helps us to understand uh, what that means. And so I guess I w- I'll just dip my toe in there just a little bit. God's decrees are the wise, free, and holy acts of the counsel of his will. I won't read the whole catechism question, but how about just that first clause there? It's what God has ordained. It's what God has declared. It's what God in his own holy and free will, because God has that, uh, what he has ordained to occur in all eternity and in space-time and in your life and my life and what happens in this world, whether it's things high and holy things concerning man's salvation or more ordinary things as what happens with the weather uh, today, that which God has decreed, or, or rather that which God has declared and ordained to come to pass. So there's a there's there's a start at something of a definition. Why don't you guys run with that? Well, Sean, I think that um, in trying to give us a summary of the answer there without cheating too much on, on question and answer 12, we have to understand that he's also decreed for all eternity, what will happen for his glory, right? Yes. Um, yes. And, and you know, I was uh, taking a counseling class uh, here recently at RTS Charlotte for uh, my doctoral of ministry degree, uh, and repeatedly uh, for every situation, every circumstance, every uh, issue that we uh, tackled throughout the week, Romans 8.28 kept coming up, that God has worked all things out for those who love him, uh, who entrust their lives according to his decrees, right, or his purposes. He is working it out for our good and his glory. Uh, and so we, we have a, a, real, um, a real applicable... Uh, declaration being made by the apostle Paul that his decrees are good uh, and they will bring glory to his name, which means that they will work out for the good of his people as well. You know, one of the things I want to point out here is the question speaks particularly about what the scriptures make known about God. Uh, you know, we, we we are talking toward his decrees. It mentions his decrees, but it's what his decrees and the carrying out or the execution of those decrees say about him. I think that's really what's in focus here, his sovereign power, his uh, creational authority over all things, uh, his present upholding and sustaining of all his creatures and all of their actions. So it, in, in a lot of ways, it really just it speaks to his power, his sovereignty, uh, his goodness, all of these things. It, it um, rightly draws us to behold him uh, and to think through who he is in every situation and every circumstance according to the way the scripture speaks about his involvement in time, in history, and in the promises of things to come. And this portion of the catechism, I really appreciate the fact that it talks about not just that God decrees whatsoever comes to pass, but that the scriptures also tell us how he does what he does. And um, you you think of those places like uh, in Genesis 50, where it says, you meant it for evil. Mm -hmm but God meant it for good. So God's holy, wise, and powerful preserving, we call this his providence of uh, his governing all his creatures and all their actions. These are the working out of his decrees and decrees, which Matt did a great job 
talking about how these decrees are before time, that these decrees are not dependent upon the creature, but that these are determinative of whatsoever comes to pass. So the Bible tells us that God is the decreer, the determiner, uh, the one who is sovereignly in control of all things, and that invariably he executes his decrees. You know, you and I, we have lots of purposes and lots of things that we intend to do, but uh, we don't always have the capacity or the ability to execute our desires or those things. So, for example, uh, if you decreed that your wife get you a cup of coffee, Sean, I don't know how that would go over for you. I, I could envision that going very differently than uh, <laughs> whoever set up that scenario. But um, when God decrees get, something. We're about to get blacklisted and canceled from ever doing a Prisby Girls crossover podcast after today's episode. <laughs> you can record from the doghouse and I'll be safely away from the blast zone uh, here in the sunshine state of Florida. But yeah, but God the, is the, uh, the, it, the penalty shed that we have there in our backyard, the penitentiary shed. I thought that was one of the, when you showed me the Zillow listing for your house, I thought that was one of the more lovely features. Uh, the backsplash <laughs> was nice too, but yeah, that he is the executor, that he is the accomplisher of every single one of his decrees. How profoundly comforting is that to the Christian that our God, his plans never fail out what he purposes. He performs. Yes. That's good news. Yes. Yeah, we don't have a God who rolls the cosmic dice and, um, you know, whatever outcome uh, happens, you know, he has to react to it. Uh, we have a God who is sovereign and in control. And there's a reason that Charles Spurgeon said the sovereignty of God is a pillow for which the Christian can lay their head on, you know, and that that's important. That the decrees of God help build our faith and help strengthen our uh, assurance that God works all things out together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So it is a beautiful, beautiful uh, doctrine and, and truth that is found in scripture that should be proclaimed. And, and no doubt there are times when things need to be handled carefully but uh, we should not shy away from speaking about the sovereignty of our great God. That's right. I mean, there's zero chance of anything which God has decreed not happening, <laughs> not not taking place. I mean, we think of our own pitiful lives and we decree something. There's a there's a very high chance that it won't happen if we were arrogant enough to decree anything. But even, you know, you think of the mightiest kings. You think of the Roman Empire at the height of its power, Caesar might decree something from his throne in Rome that needs to take place in far off Britannia. He says, I declared this should happen. I decreed this should happen. Well, maybe. I mean, if the soldiers are going to cooperate and follow orders like they're supposed to, but maybe they won't. Maybe they just won't give a hoot and do what you tell them. But there is zero chance of that happening with our God. There is zero chance of him making a declaration, ordaining something, and all things not falling into place exactly as he wills it. I have a question for y'all on this. Joel Osteen once said that God closed uh, Zechariah's mouth because he knew that his uh, negative confession would hinder the plan of God. You think that's accurate? No. <laughs> let the record you show. hesitated there for a second, Matt. Are let, you sure? let the record show that Matt Adams said no. <laughs> And he said no oh, first, right. speaking on behalf of all of us here at Larger for Life Ministries. <laughs> no. Yeah. And this How is, do you recover I think, from that. <laughs> I don't know if you do, guys, uh, but 
it's it is amazing though when you think about uh, people and their view of God. And we actually, uh, I was speaking to somebody um, recently, and the question came up: Did God decree the fall? And this person said, "No, God God couldn't decree the fall. The fall is evil." And uh, I mean, we're this is a subject for an entire episode later on to be sure, but mm. um, God's decrees, one of my favorite Puritans is Thomas Watson. And there's a great book. It's originally called the divine cordial, but it's published by banner of truth in the Puritan paperback series. It's called all things for good. And it is an extended meditation on Romans eight twenty eight. And he uses this illustration of how our good God uses and decrees even evil providences all the while we understand not being the author of evil or the approver thereof, mm-hmm. but how our good God uses evil for good ends. And he talks about an apothecary and how an apothecary or a you know pharmacist can take a, a substances, a druggist, yes, can take substances which left to themselves and independently of one another, they're both poisonous. But when they're mixed together, in exactly the right manner and proportion, they actually become medicinal to the partaker. And that's what it's like with evil in this world. God, in his good purposes, is able to work out and bring together uh, all of the execution of every one of his decrees in such a way that it's good for every single one of his people, that there's never, think of that, there's never any collateral damage in the execution of God's decrees God's children, it's always what is best for them. And it's working together in such a way that only God can do it. So again, further comforts for the believer. Yeah, unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Whatsoever comes to pass. That's what he decreed. And aren't you just so comforted uh, that the bad things are under the decree in the hand of a sovereign God? Yes. Even the evil things. I mean, otherwise, what would we be dealing with? Well, uh, we, we'd be polytheist, essentially. We'd have something that's outside of our God controlling things that uh, are in this world beyond him. Uh, it, there's hopelessness in a God that doesn't decree even the bad things and even the evil things, uh, because that God has no power then to stop them or to remedy them for the people who suffer under it. And so, you know, it, it sounds like a happy and a pious uh, sort of comment or a thought for a moment, but from a pastoral standpoint, for the souls of God's people. Uh, I want to know nothing uh, less than a God uh, who not only has directing power over the good things, but can help me in the midst of the very, very bad things. And doesn't that just show you how different God is from us? You know, we, I know we've, we've said that already, but that the scriptures declare to us a God who is much different than his creation, that we as his people are dependent upon him. Uh, The world is dependent upon him. Even the catechism will go on in question 12 when it talks about his decrees that the angels are dependent upon him. And and I think about uh, James Henley Thornwell. uh, Moorcraft mentions him in, in his commentary on the larger catechism. Uh, he says, you know, after pointing out the absolute dependence of all angels and men upon God, Thornwell writes, but how different with God 
He leans upon nothing. He lives no barred life. He asks no leave to be. He is because he is. His throne is stable as eternity. Struck out all the creatures, and he still is glorious, holy, majestic, and blessed. As when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy, the universe has added nothing to his bliss and can subtract nothing from his fullness. Mm. Well, my mind has gone to two scriptures in particular, you know, Genesis 50, what is it? Verse 20, um, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. This Joseph having this overriding sense um, of God um, being the one who superintends all things and, and despite secondary causes, right? Um, God is the, the ultimate primary cause. And, um, and then secondly, um, I think about what happens what Peter describes in the book of a uh, book of acts that um, in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, um, you put him to death. You know, he's put to death by hands of lost men, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You know, what's the greatest evil that's ever been committed? Uh, the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. And yet, yes, people were, were responsible for that. They crucified him. Uh, but it was all done according to the definite plan, the predestination of God. And so you see in Scripture, God, who is sovereign, he is the primary means, the primary uh, mover. Um, but it does not eliminate secondary causes or the use of secondary means. And so we, we don't think we're robots, right? We don't believe in robots, but we do believe in a sovereign God who decrees all things. You know, fellas, it's uh, this has n- nothing to do with the theology of the catechism at all, but uh, apparently a memo went out today that everyone was supposed to wear navy blue uh, for today's broadcast. Uh, our listeners obviously can't see it, but there's three navy blue polos and two navy blue button-up shirts uh, featured here on the on the visage of each of the hosts. So well done, fellas. Friends, <laughs> on behalf of Derek, Matt, Sean, Stephen, and myself, I'd like to thank you for joining us on this episode of Larger for Life podcast. We've enjoyed thinking through question six of the Larger Catechism, and we hope that you have been helped in your walk with Christ, and that as you walk through the week ahead, uh, these things would come to mind and that you'd be encouraged. Uh, we also hope that you'll join us again next Monday morning as we dive into Larger Catechism question seven. What is God? Till then, God bless. You have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism, brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast, and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash larger for life. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life. <laughs>